that there was one space left in my life we had not yet explored. And I knew that one day it would come up. Still, when it did, I wasn't ready. Without any of the usual pleasantries, Jesus came to me and said, There's a stench in this house. Something must be dead. I'm pretty sure it's coming from the hall closet. I was reluctant to have this conversation, but he led the way, and I trudged behind him anyway. Years ago, I had put a lock on a little closet in the hall, and I had stuffed a few things in there I didn't want anyone to know about. I took them out from time to time to look at them, things from my old life. They weren't depraved or evil or dangerous, but they also weren't good for healthy for a Christian. Though they were dead and rotting, I loved these things. I held on tightly to them. Now, they didn't think any, it was anybody's business, not even Jesus's. We stood looking at the closet together. He cocked his head toward the door and waited. In there, he said. My rebel heart roared within me, and I was mad. He had the run of the place, my study, the dining room, kitchen, bedroom, and more. All I wanted was this one little space. I clutched the key in my pocket. No way, I thought to myself. Okay, he said, not angrily, but firmly. I'll move my things to the back porch or something, but I will not stay here around that. He began to step away. My heart sank. Now that I had come to know Jesus as friend, I couldn't stomach the idea that he would withdraw his close friendship especially not over my own petty stubbornness. Okay, I said with resignation, here's the key, stretching out my hand to him. But can you do it? I love these things too much. Of course, I'm actually glad to be asked. In short order, the closet was cleaned out, freshly painted and organized. In truth, I was relieved. I had stopped noticing how these things hung around the air of my life, but to have them have them rooted out, change the whole atmosphere. We still find occasional corners of sin or pain, but I have quickly learned to turn to Jesus to address them, heal me, and bring new life. Feels like we're getting increasingly personal here. Uh, last week, the master bedroom, and now this locked hall closet. I just leaned over to Daniel and said, this feels like a little bit of a jarring message the day before Christmas Eve. And he said, what could be more jarring than the God of the universe coming into a manger? And I said, okay, all right, here we go. We'll just be jarring. But if you feel a little uncomfortable thinking about uh, your own hall closet, these hidden places in your life, just know that that's how I've been feeling for the whole last week, thinking about inviting all of you into my hall closet. So here we go. Part of preparing our hearts for Jesus, as we just heard from Mike, means clearing out the things in our lives that are inhospitable to him, to his presence with us. And throughout Advent, we've been talking about these different rooms, the study, the dining room, the kitchen, the bedroom, and how Jesus brings goodness and purpose and new life into our habits and our skills and our relationships. He comes to transform every single part of our lives. And the hall closet really is about giving God access to the hidden places as well that he might transform us there. 
And here's the thing that I have been thinking about with the hall closet. The Lord dealt with my hall closet in a pretty significant way about 20 years ago. And it was like a major overhaul. Like everything got gutted and deep cleaned all at once over this period of time. But also just two weeks ago, he needed to open up my hall closet door again and deal with some new stuff. And it wasn't nearly as intense as that first time, but it was a recent moment with the deep hidden places in me that needed the presence and truth of Jesus to light up a dark corner in my life. And here is what I know. Standing in front of that hall closet, both 20 years ago and two weeks ago, I knew how to ask Jesus for help because someone had come alongside me in some way to encourage me, literally to speak courage into me. And so as we look into God's word this morning, I'm going to share my hall closet stories with you, both the one from decades ago and from just days ago. Because as we've been learning this fall, we know that God teaches us through the story of God and the story of us. God wants to speak to us through his word and through our life together. So let's pray as we open up this little room. Lord, your word tells us that you intend for your kindness to lead us to repentance. And so, Lord, I thank you especially this morning for your kindness. Now, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit, your living word, would have your way in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout Advent, we have been referencing this passage in Revelation 3 when Jesus said this, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. This morning, we're going to look at the rest of the passage that surrounds this verse, and it's a letter to a particular church calling for their repentance and their sanctification. Here is what it says in that, rev- in that letter in Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. It's Jesus. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is quite a letter. Can you imagine receiving that one? I actually want to begin today in the middle of the letter. 
especially as we think about our hall closets, because I think this is so important. The reason that Jesus has concern for the things in our lives that are not good for us and why he is willing and wants to step into the dark places to, the, to do the deep cleaning in the parts of our lives that are decaying, to come into our hall closets is why? What does Jesus say? It's because he loves us. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. That is so important for us to see. In multiple places in scripture, we are told this. In Hebrews 12, it says this, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. God is a good father, and like any good parent knows, discipline is required for us, for any child to grow up and to be healthy and mature. So we're told, do not lose heart when the Lord disciplines you. When the Lord does a deep clean, a sweep of your life, he loves you enough to do the hard work in you and with you and for you. But sometimes when we are in the midst of it, it is hard to remember. So exactly 20 years ago in 1998, it was the summer before my senior year in college, and I went to Russia on a 10-week mission trip, very much like our messenger program. And part of what made this summer mission trip so significant for me is that it was the summer before I would return to Cal for my final year on the crew team. We had just raced in the national final a couple weeks before our group left for Russia. We had a new head coach, it was kind of a big deal, was coming for my senior season. I was the captain of the team, I had a scholarship, and I set out on this mission trip with a training plan for those 10 weeks so that I could come back for my senior year in, in good shape to begin. And one of the first days we were in Russia, the rest of the group was resting with jet lag, and I thought I would just get a quick run-in. Not ever thinking that a college girl in a California t-shirt with my yellow Walkman would stand out in a place that just nine years before had been locked behind the Iron Curtain. So long story short, I was chased into the woods by a Jeep until I could run between the narrow gaps in the trees where the Jeep couldn't get, and I ran as fast as I could back to this concrete structure of dorms where we were staying. And as you might imagine, as I ran up out of breath to my leaders and told them what happened, I was, from that point on, no longer permitted to train for the rest of those 10 weeks. And so for the first time in my life, I was required to stop, to stop pushing my body and to learn how to rest and to be still. But not just for my body, but for my mind and my soul as well. And those 10 weeks changed me significantly. We would often have two hours of personal time in the morning with the Lord to journal and to meditate on scripture. And I knew that it was time that I certainly would have cut into to work out if I had not been required not to, been required to be still. And never had I felt so intimately near and loved by the Lord as I did that summer, just saturated with his loving presence. And it was out of that time of rest, 
It was out of that time of assurance of God's deep love for me that this season of discipline came in my life. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. But before we go there, let's go back to this letter written to the people of the church in Laodicea. Here is what we know about them. This people, this church, had already said yes to Jesus, to a relationship with Jesus. But over time, their lives had become full of compromise and idolatry. They looked no different from the culture around them, and we know that it was a very pagan culture, lots of idol worship. There was no longer any evidence of the life of Christ in them as individuals and as a group, as a church, which also meant there was no witness to Christ in their city, just a lot of spiritual poverty in their own lives, in the lives of the church, and therefore in the lives of the wider community. And here is something that I love about Jesus. He gives the church this strong warning in a personal way that they could not miss, that it was for them. He used examples, if you remember from this letter, wealth and hot and cold water and blindness and gold refined in the fire and white clothes. And we know that Laodicea was a wealthy city. It actually had a medical school that specialized in ophthalmology. It was known for this special eye salve that they exported all over the Mediterranean world. It had a lucrative industry in dark cloth and clothing, and water was the major issue for this city. And so Jesus was using the things right around them to wake them up from their spiritual slumber, to call them out again because he loves them, because he wants victory in their lives for them, and also for his witness for the people around them. I think sometimes people think of this reference to hot and cold water is either about being for or against Jesus, and you can see how it would be interpreted that way, but that's not actually what Jesus is talking about here. He's not suggesting an option for the church to be against him. Laodicea didn't have its own water source, but it was close to major hot springs. They were just six miles to the north in Heropolis. And it also had these cold mountain streams that were uh, 11 miles to the west. And both sources, hot and cold, were good sources. So the hot springs had these healing properties, much like the ones around us, and the cold waters were pure and good to drink. At their source, both the hot and the cold were good. But the city of Laodicea had to bring water into their city by miles of man-made aqueducts. And by the time the hot and the cold water got to Laodicea, the hot had cooled off, the cold had warmed up. All the water in their city was lukewarm. And it had picked up miles of impurities as it traveled in these aqueducts, so that by the time it got to them, the water made people nauseous. It tasted so bad that it made you want to spit it out of your mouth. And Jesus was saying, your spiritual lives are just like that. They're nauseating. They're unidentifiable from the source from which they've come. Just like the water, their faith and their lack of it was distasteful and useless and unidentifiable from the source. And he goes on with this rebuke of their indiscernible faith. He said, you who are known for your advancement of ophthalmology, eye medicine, you think you can see but in fact, 
you're blind to your own malaise. You who compromise your faith to be rich, you are actually poor in the ways that truly matter. You who weave clothes for others have left yourselves shamefully naked. You do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This is Jesus' word of warning and rebuke. But then Jesus says to this people, to this church, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. He says, I love you. I want to be with you. Turn away from your compromising, lukewarm, half-hearted faith. Repent of your idolatry. Come back to the source of your life. Sometimes I think we imagine that God is eager to discipline or punish us, or that when we experience a tragedy, we think that God is trying to teach us a harsh lesson. But actually the discipline that happens that Jesus talks about in this passage is simply what will happen when the people are faithful, when they repent. Jesus knows that when the people of Laodicea make choices to be connected to him, the source of their faith, that there will be consequences for their businesses, for their wealth, for their reputation. To be identified with Christ, to be clothed with Christ would mean persecution for some of them being connected to the true source of their life. But it also meant true life and true wealth and true vision, true victory. Jesus knows that us being connected to him in faithfulness is for our abundant life, even if it means hardship, even if it feels like discipline. And that really resonates with my own experience When I returned to Berkeley that fall after my summer in Russia, you can imagine my body had changed significantly. But I knew that even if I had trained my hardest all summer, I was not gonna make the boat that year. I was not the captain because I was the strongest rower. And the team was getting better and better every year. Stronger athletes, Olympians were coming to be developed. When I was in Russia on that mission trip, my identity in Christ had been settled and solidified in such a way that I was okay to step back from this thing that had been such a huge part of my life and all that went along with it. And that was a difficult decision, but it was also a relief for me in many ways. And being done with that part of my life provided a time and attention for new growth and discipline in other areas. But that first week when I went back to campus, I met up with my mentor and I told her all about my summer. And she is amazing. She was such a gift to me. For three years, up until that point, she had taken me under her wing. She gave so much time pouring the life of Christ into me, caring for me, asking generous and challenging questions. And she celebrated this amazing summer with me. But then sometime soon after that, like a skillful surgeon, like Jesus did with the people in Laodicea. She tested the places in me that she knew very well. Pride, people-pleasing, managing appearances, and she pointedly asked me this question. So in light of this deepened understanding of God's love for you that you have experienced this summer, 
I wonder, she said, is there still anything in your life that you could not say to another trusted person? Anything in your life that you couldn't be honest about? And I immediately hated her question. Why would you even ask that, I thought, especially now? And I just got this pit in my stomach. And I felt like I was all of a sudden standing in front of my locked hall closet door that I thought nobody else knew existed. I was so angry. And I just said, yes, there are definitely things in my life that I would never talk about with another human being. And I just assume that that was the case for everyone. And ever so gently, she said to me, she said, if you are so deeply loved and nothing in your life is outside the reach of God's grace and forgiveness, why are there parts of you that remain hidden and secret? She was not advocating for me to wear my inner life on my sleeve with everyone all the time, but she was testing the depth of my faith, calling me to demonstrate my trust that I am fully loved and known and forgiven. And she really was extending the Lord's loving discipline to me. And so for weeks, this question just agitated me. I went on about my classes and small groups and meals with friends, just life went on. But that question kept stirring in my mind. Why was I afraid to confess and name my sin before one other human being? You know, everyone's hall closet experience is different, but I sensed as I went about my days that fall that I was supposed to write down every sin I have ever knowingly done. And I'm talking pages, like line by line of handwritten lists. And many of the mornings that I would have been at practice, I sat in the living room in my sorority house and I closed the doors and I went back to childhood, I went back to middle school, I went back to high school. Hurtful words I had said to people, people I had hurt, sexual sins, cheating, lying, stealing, thoughts that didn't affect anyone as far as I knew, but hidden things, habits, body stuff, food stuff, ways of thinking, shameful things, gross things, judgment of other people, specific things, forms of pride, things that I had done. A lot of it I had locked away and tried to forget, but life has a way of triggering these memories and guilt. And I knew that I was thought of as being good as a student, as an athlete, as a Bible study leader, as a leader in my sorority, and I did good things, and I got a lot of props for it as a young adult. And I think I and others would have said, like the Laodiceans, I don't need a thing. I'm actually quite rich. But I also knew that there was this unseen part of my life. But since no one else knew about it, I was allowed, even unknowingly, to pretend like it wasn't that big of a deal. But Jesus knew, and he could say, I know your deeds like he said to the people of Laodicea. I know that you are neither hot nor cold, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked is what you are in the hidden places. And so whatever delusions I had about myself and whatever I wanted others to think of me were getting 
undone as I spent time with the Lord in the hall closet that fall. And after making lists and going through these memories, I was so ready to be done. I just had them and I carried them around, these pieces of paper. I just felt like I was in this cramped closet looking at my sin with the Lord. But then I sensed that I was actually supposed to confess and read my list to two specific people. And I thought, oh, enough. Line by line, page by page, memory by memory, every single thing. It was absolutely my greatest fear. And I remember sitting with one of my girlfriends and it took me so long to begin, like probably 90 minutes. And she just sat there with me, both of them, and extended and declared the forgiveness of Jesus. And they also promised not to dwell on my sin. And then when I thought I could absolutely not stay in this hall closet mode any longer, I then sensed that I was supposed to call many of the people on that list and apologize for what I had done, and in some cases what we had done. And then to make amends, if I could. And I knew that there might be some consequences for things, even after all this time. So I called people that I hadn't talked to for years, and it was so awkward, and so humbling, and so humiliating. And I felt like I was living in this little dark closet surrounded by all of my dirtiness for that fall semester. And this is what still amazes me about that time. I gave God access to everything. Nothing was off limits. And I hope I would be as earnest today as I was then. But man, he was earnest too because I felt like he did not leave one inch, one corner of that closet unexamined. And I felt like I had so many knots and pits in my stomach that I just wanted to just melt into the floor and not ever be seen. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. The verse that was on my mind at that time was John 15, and it had been the theme, actually, for our summer mission trip in Russia. But particularly these two verses, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or cleans so that it will be even more fruitful. And it felt like that, pruning, cleaning, purifying, being refined by fire. It was, I still look back, my dark night of the soul, for sure. But I think I knew even then that it was for my good, that fruitfulness would eventually replace darkness. It's what Jesus said to the people in Laodicea. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. And all these promises I just took hold of when that season was done. Purity, being clothed and covered in white, being given new eyes to see not only myself, but the people around me, 
and a fellowship with Jesus deeper even than I had experienced that summer in Russia. Victory over my sin. Victory not only for this life, but for life to come. And there was a deep peace that I knew I had fully surrendered everything. There were no more secrets. Jesus and my trusted friends had stepped all the way into my hall closet, if you will. They saw it all, they forgave me, and it really did change my whole life. It did then, and it has remained. What a gift the Lord gives us that he loves us so deeply that he would discipline me, that he would discipline us so completely. But as we close, I want to be sure that you know that I still actually have a hall closet. I still need to open up that door that sometimes feels dark and hidden beneath the surface of my heart. So as I mentioned just a couple weeks ago, I had um, one of those moments where this wave of jealousy washed over me and then hung around my heart and mind for a couple days. And in that time, I was reminded of a man who I deeply respect. He's in the prime of his life in so many ways. He's such an amazing guy. He lives in the Chicago area. And he was saying that he was on a business trip on an airplane, and all of a sudden, he was overcome by this wave of loneliness. And I was so thankful that he talked about it and how he handled it because it helped me just a couple weeks ago. And he said, as this like cold loneliness settled in, instead of picking up the in-flight magazine to distract himself, instead of ordering a drink, he said he sat there in his seat and closed his eyes and asked the Lord to come into the loneliness with him. Right there on the airplane, just to be with him to speak to him anything he needed to hear about that cold loneliness. And when I remembered his story about his loneliness, I was able to do the same thing with my jealousy. The next opportunity I had to be still and quiet, I just asked the Lord to come in. It was like we met again at the hall closet door, and we went in together. And as I sat still in that moment, he showed me longings in me that needed clarity and lies that needed truth, and also simply where I just needed his companionship and his comfort. And it wasn't a long, drawn-out process. It wasn't even uncomfortable. In fact, it was a really gentle, tender thing that God did. And it made me realize I probably need to meet him at the door of my hall closet a little bit more often. It's so good not to be afraid to open it up and to go into those things that we would rather not acknowledge in our lives. Sometimes things like jealousy and loneliness. And to know that Jesus is already there, standing at the door, ready to go there with us and also ready to bring us out. So you and your hall closet may not need a full-scale overhaul like I did, You might, but either way, I want to encourage you to invite Jesus to be with you in the day-to-day things, those things that stir in the hidden places in your life because he loves you. 
He wants to be with you and to give you abundant life and victory for your sake and for the sake of the people around you. Let me pray for you. Lord, you are so kind. You are so precise in the way that you discipline and show your care for us. So Lord, thank you that you know each and every one of us. Nothing is hidden to you. Pray, Lord, that you would give us courage to invite you into those hidden places in our hearts to give you access to us, that we would surrender to your kindness, that we would surrender to your grace, that you would make us new. Lord, thank you for your great love for us that you have demonstrated in so many ways. As we prepare to uh, celebrate Christmas the next couple days, might we remember, God, that you have come to be with us because of your great love for the world. So Lord, we thank you. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.